Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This podcast takes a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. Please consider sharing it with family and friends and submitting a review on iTunes. In each episode, you will hear introductory remarks, a short flyover summary of the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Ether, Chapter 1 Well, by this point in the Book of Mormon, as we begin its second-to-last book, we are certainly accustomed to the idea of multiple authors and records. The idea, then, of a book within a book in the Book of Mormon is not new to us. But when we turn the page from Moroni chapter 9 to Ether chapter 1, this phenomenon of a book within a book is taken to a whole new level. With the book of Ether, we take a giant leap back in time, a leap of Genesis proportions, we might say. Ether is the self-contained story of an entirely new group of people, yet at the same time a far older group of people than the Nephites and the Lamanites. We'll learn much about this group of people in our reading, who we will refer to as the Jaredites. And we'll learn a great deal from Moroni as he supplants his father as the editorial voice in this book. At present, however, before we begin our reading of Ether chapter 1, I'd like to take a few moments and look at the significance of this 15-chapter book, its role and position in the Book of Mormon, and its relationship to other scripture. First, the ancient Jaredite record, again as presented to us through Moroni's 15-chapter abridgment called the Book of Ether, can show us that the concept of the Lord's other sheep, other covenant people, can exist across space, as the Lord intimated in 3 Nephi chapter 15, when he said in verse 17 that other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. But these other covenant people can also exist across time. Just like with Adam, Noah, Enoch, Melchizedek, Abraham, and many others, the characters in the book of Ether show us that while Jacob and his twelve sons are the archetypal example of covenant Israel, they are not the only instance. In other words, the Lord's pattern of appointing a covenant people did not begin chronologically with Father Israel and his posterity. This pattern predates Father Jacob. It begins with Adam. This tells us then, and the book of Ether reinforces this message, that actually all who descend from Adam are in the privileged position of access to the full salvation of Jesus Christ. We can remember what Paul said, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Uh, and he said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. And remember, as Moroni just reminded us in Mormon chapter 9, verse 9, For do we not read that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? And in him there is no variableness, neither shadow of changing. So all of these scriptural flocks, or 
all of these branches of the vineyard, to borrow imagery from Zenos, are tied to the Lord with a covenant to, quote, be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing. And invariably, they are commanded to keep a record. This also tells us that just as there were biblical covenant keepers that predated Jacob, there were Book of Mormon covenant keepers that predated Lehi. Thus, Lehi's exile story is not a one-off occurrence. Amazingly, long before Joseph's fruitful bow crossed over the wall in the form of a vessel built by Nephi, there was another group who did the same thing in barges built by the brother of Jared. So, as we approach the Book of Ether as the penultimate book in the Book of Mormon, we will read an ancient variation upon the same theme we have already read in Nephi's small plates and in Mormon's abridgment of the large plates. We will meet a chosen group of people who follow the exile pattern. They are commanded to leave their homeland and journey into the wilderness, being led by the Lord to a land whose fruits, milk, honey, and most importantly, liberty, are all conditioned upon a promise. As Ether chapter 2, verses 10 and 12 will say, For behold, this is a land which is choice above all other lands. Wherefore, he that doth possess it shall serve God or shall be swept off. For it is the everlasting decree of God. And it is not until the fullness of iniquity among the children of the land that they are swept off. And then verse 12, Behold, this is a choice land, and whatsoever nation shall possess it shall be free from bondage and from captivity and from all other nations under heaven, if they will but serve the God of the land who is Jesus Christ. So these wandering flocks in exile that we see throughout the scriptures are always a people who are led by Jehovah. He led Moses with a cloud by day and a pillar by night. He fed Moses' people with manna. He led Lehi with the Leahona and inspired his party as to where to hunt for food. And as we will discover in the book of Ether, he led the brother of Jared while in a cloud, and with sixteen illuminated stones when they crossed the water. And he fed Jared's people with all manner of that which was on the face of the land, seeds of every kind, and curiously, with swarms of bees. In all of these instances of exile, then, we find a people who are refined by Christ, who enter into covenants with him, followers who enter the straight gate and travel the narrow path that leads back to the tree of life. The Jaredites provide us with one more variation on this theme. We learn what happens when God's people yield to the adversary and stray. If they give him place to the degree that they will allow secret combinations to enter their society, then they are ripe for destruction. All of these patterns are evident, and all of these themes are sounded in this short, self-contained book of Ether. In this way, we can see that the book of Ether is actually a microcosm of the entire Book of Mormon in which it is embedded. Yet, chronologically speaking, it is a precursor that provides precedent for the story that begins with Lehi and ends with Moroni. Well, with all of this in mind, I think it's instructive to ask the following question. Since the book of Ether does predate the story of Lehi, and Mulek for that matter, why is it placed at the end of the Book of Mormon? What wisdom is there in its out-of-order placement? Shouldn't it be found at the very beginning? Well, here are a couple possible answers to that question. First, 
The Book of Ether seems to be a way of making sure that we got the message, that message that was so carefully laid out by Mormon in his abridgment of the large plates of Nephi, and again by Nephi before him in the small plates of Nephi. So has the message of the Book of Mormon settled upon our minds by this point in the narrative? Now that we have read everything from 1 Nephi 1 to Mormon chapter 9? Have we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is mighty to save as we turn to him? Have we come to see that those who keep the commandments of God do prosper, both individually and collectively, and that those who do not are cut off? Have we developed a disdainful respect for the power of the adversary and his ability to drag his unwitting adherents down to hell with a flaxen cord? Have we become familiar with the rhetoric of the enemies of Christ? Have we come to see that the day of destruction really does come for the wicked, and that the day of judgment really will come for all? The book of Ether provides us with another opportunity to revisit all of these themes in condensed form. This way, when we complete Ether chapter 15 and return to Moroni's world, where he will bring the entire record to an end, we will have received a second witness of the messages of the Book of Mormon. This confirms the Lord's pattern of witnesses in a very unique way. And of course, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established, said Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1. Well, and second, before we move into the book of Ether with its entirely new cast of characters, let's consider another reason that the earliest book of the Book of Mormon appears at its end, and really why it appears in the Book of Mormon narrative at all. Not only is Ether a self-contained second witness of the messages described above, but it does something else. A short thought experiment might reveal the secondary purpose. Imagine that through a printing error, unbeknownst to you, in your personal copy of the Book of Mormon, the 15-chapter Book of Ether had been accidentally expunged. If this were the case, how would it feel to move directly from Mormon chapter 9 to Moroni chapter 1? Well, actually, this might seem very natural. We might never even realize that we had missed the Book of Ether. However, if the Book of Mormon really did end in this way, if there really was no book of ether, then there would be several narrative loose ends that were never addressed, cues and clues embedded in the record by Mormon that still need resolving. If ether were omitted, we might still finish the Book of Mormon with a great sense of satisfaction. But in time, we might wonder, hold on, what about the 24 plates that Limhi's expedition discovered and that King Mosiah translated? What about Coriantumr, who was discovered by the Mulekites? Uh, what about the land among many waters, which was covered with the bones of men and with ruins of buildings of every kind, as it says in Mosiah chapter 8, verse 8, and a land which had been peopled with a people who were as numerous as the hosts of Israel? And what about Alma's words to Helaman in Alma chapter 37, when he told Helaman about the 24 plates of a mysterious people the people who were plagued with works of darkness, who, if they did not repent, they should be destroyed from off the face of the earth. Well, of course, it's the Book of Ether that does provide the answer to these questions. As Ogden and Skinner have written, the Book of Ether is, as its subtitle indicates, the record of the Jaredites taken from the 24 plates found by the people of Limhi in the days of King Mosiah. King Mosiah made a translation of the record in the Nephite language. 
a promise was made back in the book of Mosiah that this record would be included in the compilation to come forth. That promise is found in Mosiah chapter 28, verse 19. The book of Ether is a greatly abridged history. It contains only a hundredth part of all that happened, as uh, we will learn in Ether chapter 15, verse 33, of a people that came from the Tower of Babel in the Old World and occupied part of the ancient Americas from approximately 2200 B.C. to at least the 500s B.C. The summary by Elder James E. Talmadge is helpful. He says, Of the two nations whose histories constitute the Book of Mormon, the first in order of time consisted of the people of Jared, who followed their leader from the Tower of Babel at the time of the confusion of tongues. And we can read of that in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. Their history, Elder Talmadge continues, was written on 24 plates of gold by Ether, the last of their prophets, who, foreseeing the destruction of his people because of their wickedness, hid away these historic plates. They were afterward found about B.C. 122 by an expedition sent out by King Limhi, a Nephite ruler. The record engraved on these plates was subsequently abridged by Moroni, and the condensed account was attached by him to the Book of Mormon record. It appears in the modern translation under the name of the Book of Ether. So, since the Book of Ether is included in our edition of the Book of Mormon, since it certainly has not been omitted, we are able to see the tying of Mormon's loose narrative ends. And again, as to the previous purpose, we are provided with a unique and powerful second witness of the message of the Book of Mormon. Well, this also serves to reveal, yet one more time before the Book of Mormon ends, the staggering literary complexity of the book. As Noel B. Reynolds has written, a large number of complex relationships are developed in the book and consistently maintained from beginning to end. Many of these relationships have taken scholars longer to sort out than it took Joseph Smith to translate the entire book. For example, the Book of Mormon employs at least three independent dating systems with remarkable accuracy. It also contains a complex system of religious teachings that is enriched as new sermons are added but is never confused or contradicted. The book's authors refer to a huge and complex set of sources, including official records, sermons, letters, monument inscriptions, and church records that always maintain a consistent relationship in the final text. A large number of ancient literary forms, typical of ancient texts but virtually unknown in English in most cases, are woven into the narrative. Subtle and complex political traditions evolve early in the text and surface in a variety of forms in later sections, always plausibly and consistently. The book describes various ebbs and flows of ethnic interaction without once losing track of even the most minor groups. Hundreds of individual characters are successfully introduced and coherently tracked. The geographical data in the text is diverse and complex, yet when carefully analyzed, it is perfectly consistent and, as Reynolds says, matches an identifiable portion of Mesoamerica as well. The list of examples could go on at great length. Well, now with Ether's role within the Book of Mormon established, we can turn inward to this book and begin to appreciate its structure and its substantial internal complexities. A stunning example of this, I think, is the genealogy that we are about to read in Ether chapter 1. It is a listing of 30 unique names that connect Ether to Jared. These names and an associated history, albeit a very terse history, is subsequently recorded in Ether chapters 6 through 11 
but in reverse order. So in the book of Ether, we will move back in time, but we will cover a great deal of ground chronologically. Then we will deal with many new names and genealogies. We will read of complex narrative schemes and transcendent doctrines. And on top of all of this complexity, just like with Mormon's abridgment, most of what we read in Ether will be filtered through the lens of an abridger and editor, but this time Moroni. He will provide us with key editorial interjections that add to his own body of work. All of these complexities will come to the fore during our reading of the text. Truly, the Book of Ether, this little book that vastly predates the story of Lehi's migration, is also a precious and prescient book for our time. Well, before we look at the structure of Ether chapter 1, I would like to maintain a high-altitude view of Ether's 15 chapters for just a moment longer, and I want to appeal to an observation that's made by Richard Dilworth Rust, who provides us with a very unique perspective on the book of Ether. He says, We get closer to the essence of the book of Ether by looking at its structure in the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon. Originally, he says, it was made up of six chapters. Uh, Chapter 1 would correspond with chapters 1 through 4 in our current Book of Mormon. Chapter 2 in the 1830 edition would correspond with our chapter 5. And chapter 3 in the 1830 edition would correspond with our chapters 6 through 8. Chapter 4 in the 1830 edition would correspond with our chapters 9 through 11. Chapter 5 would correspond with our chapter 12. And chapter 6 would correspond with our chapters 13 through 15. All but one of these chapters begins with, and now I Moroni. And the fourth sentence of the remaining chapter, in chapter 5, begins with, and now I Moroni, emphasizing the central position of Moroni in the presentation and structure of the book of Ether. By stepping back and looking at its structure, uh, Rust continues, we can see how the book of Ether is a parable for our time. The preface of the book of Ether is the last chapter in the previous book, Mormon, uh, chapter 4 in the 1839 edition, actually, and then chapters eight through, uh, corresponding with chapters 8 through 9 in the current edition, from which we learn that Moroni is the sole survivor to, quote, write the sad tale of the destruction of my people, unquote, which we read in Mormon chapter 8, verse 3. He writes specifically for people whom he has seen living when the Book of Mormon will come forth, cataloging their sins as similar to those that led to the capsizing of the Nephite civilization, pride, materialism, vanity, lack of charity, and sustaining of secret combinations. Having detailed the destruction of the Nephite people, Moroni begins the book of Ether by saying it deals with those ancient inhabitants who were destroyed by the hand of the Lord. That'll come out of verse 1 of Ether chapter 1. And now for the rest of this piece, Rust will give us a summary of each of these six 1830 chapters. So he says the first chapter, again, Uh, the first chapter in the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, which corresponds with our chapters 1 through 4, implicitly compares the experience of the Jaredites with that of the Nephites, shows in the account of the brother of Jared the kind of faith that brings the Jaredites to the land of promise, where its inhabitants are promised freedom, if, quote, they will but serve the God of the land who is Jesus Christ, and warns modern-day Gentiles to repent, that ye may not bring down the fullness of, wrath, of the wrath of God upon you, as the inhabitants of the land have hitherto done. The second chapter of Ether in the 1830 uh, edition of the Book of Mormon, which corresponds with our chapter 5, Moroni's words to the future translator of the book 
attests that the Book of Mormon will come forth and that Moroni has authority from God to bear the testimony he does. The third chapter in the 1830 edition, corresponding with our chapters 6 through 8, shows patterns of righteousness and unrighteousness by the Jaredites in the Promised Land, with prophetic warnings that the people will be destroyed if they do not repent, and with the details of the introduction of a secret combination into the Jaredite society. The specific audience for which the Book of Ether was intended, modern-day Gentiles, are warned that secret combinations have caused the destruction of the Jaredites and also of the Nephites. The fourth chapter of Ether, in the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, corresponding with our chapters 9-11 through 11 of the Book of Ether, shows the disastrous effect of secret combinations among the Jaredites, the rise and decline of generations of Jaredites who are warned to possess the land unto the Lord or be destroyed when ripened in iniquity, and Ether's coming on the scene as the last of a series of prophets warning of utter destruction. Remember earlier that what is happening here is that this original genealogy that's laid out in Ether chapter 1 is given in reverse order, beginning in Ether chapter 6. And so at the end of all of that, uh, Ether enters the stage here, as Rust is saying. Now Rust writes the fifth chapter of the 1830 edition book of Ether, which corresponds with our chapter 12, introduces Ether with his appeal for faith, and then almost immediately presents Moroni's teachings on faith, hope, and charity as the antidote his modern-day audience will need. Implicitly, Moroni identifies with Ether. Each is a prophet who hides to witness the end of his people, and then testifies of it to future inhabitants of the land. So that's another just fascinating parallel between Ether and the entire Book of Mormon, making it yet once again a, a microcosm of the Book of Mormon, but also a precursor to it. Now Rust concludes by saying the final section, or the sixth chapter of the 1830 edition of the Book of Ether, which corresponds to our modern-day chapters 13 through 15 of the Book of Ether, is Moroni's completion of his record concerning the destruction of the Jaredites. Rejecting the kind of faith and charity outlined in the previous chapter, the people are corrupted by secret combinations. Then we see in powerful detail the final destruction of the Jaredites. Thus, the essential elements of the Book of Ether are instructions on faith, beautifully illustrated by the brother of Jared, details of the nature and danger of secret combinations, and an account of the destruction of a people who turned away from Jesus Christ, the God of the land. All of this is pointed at the Gentiles, among whom the Book of Mormon would come. It is a pattern of what will happen if they do not repent, and it shows how those who heed can turn to the Savior, in whom all who believe on his name shall have life, and that eternally, as we will read in Ether chapter 3, verse 14. Well, now with all of those introductory thoughts, let's do look at the book of Ether chapter 1, and first look at the structure of this very unique chapter, which is composed of 43 verses. In verses 1 through 6, we'll see that Moroni is still our host here, as we've moved from the end of the Book of Mormon to the beginning of the Book of Ether. Uh, He says, and now I, Moroni, in verse 1. So what he will do for us is to give us an account. It's a, a, a partial account, as he will explain, but an account of the 24 plates found by the people of Limhi. So that uh, takes our minds back to uh, what was told to us in Mosiah chapter 8. So we'll read about all of those details in a moment. Then in the end of verse 6, extending all the way through uh, verse 33, Ether will provide us with his genealogy. 
He'll tell us that he was a descendant of Coriantor. Coriantor was the son of Moron. Moron was the son of Etham. And on it goes uh, through 30 people until we get to Jared. So we'll read some fascinating commentary on that genealogy here in a few moments. And remembering again that all of this genealogy gets unpacked, as it were, in reverse order as we come to Ether chapter 6. In verses 34 through 37, the story of Jared and his brother really begins. So first we find that Jared directs his brother to appeal to the Lord regarding the language that has been confounded at the Tower of Babel. And we'll then read that because of the brother of Jared's prayer, his family and friends are not confounded. Now for the final verses of this chapter, verse 38 through 43, this pattern repeats uh, another consequence of this thing that happened at the Tower of Babel, or it seems at least to be a related consequence, is that there is a need for Jared and his brother, their people, their families and their friends, to go to another place. As Jared will tell his brother in verse 38, who knoweth but the Lord will carry us forth into a land which is choice above all the earth. So it's in this final section that again, Jared directs his brother to pray. He asks him to appeal to the Lord regarding the land. And when he does so, the Lord promises the brother of Jared to lead this group of people to a choice land. And their first instructions, and this is the way that we will pick up in chapter 2 of Ether, are that they are to gather to a valley in the northward. And we'll come to find that the name of that valley is Nimrod. So at the very end of this chapter, the Lord is speaking to the brother of Jared and says, And thus will I do unto thee, because this long time ye have cried unto me, uh, seemingly making a qualifier for efficacious prayer being the length of time in which you pray. Of course, we know that there are other qualifiers as well that um, make prayer efficacious. But that's how the, this chapter comes to an end. And we'll see that this, uh, this interaction that the brother of Jared has with the Lord through prayer will be a theme that carries us through the next several chapters. Well, with that, let's return to verse 1 for a reading. We can remember that we just finished Mormon chapter 9, and we've been hearing from Moroni uh, for Mormon chapters 8 and 9. We aren't sure who we're going to hear from here as we begin Ether chapter 1, but we'll discover right at the beginning that Moroni will still be our narrative guide. Verse 1, And now I, Moroni, proceed to give an account of those ancient inhabitants who were destroyed by the hand of the Lord upon the face of this north country. And I take mine account from the twenty and four plates which were found by the people of Limhi, which is called the Book of Ether. So that jogs our memories a bit. We've read so much since this instance in Mosiah chapter 8. There have been other cues and clues, as I've mentioned earlier, about these uh, Jaredite people, but it, they were discovered in the greatest detail in Mosiah chapter 8. So that's what's being referred to here in verse 2 when it says that they are found by the people of Limhi, more accurately, perhaps in an expedition that Limhi sent so that they might found, find Zarahemla. Here's some commentary on this incident so that uh, our memories can be refreshed before we move farther into the chapter. Uh, the Book of Mormon Institute manual says, while the people of Limhi were in bondage, King Limhi sent out an expedition of 43 men to search for the land of Zarahemla. So we can remember what's happening here in this portion of Mosiah. It can become quite complicated, but while uh, Mosiah 1 and then Benjamin and then Mosiah 2, son of Benjamin, were the kings in Zarahemla, there was a parallel kingdom going on 
that was like an island kingdom embedded in the land of Nephi. Now, the land of Nephi at this time was Lamanite territory. So this began with uh, Zenith's expedition, and then Zenith had a, a, a king's son named uh, Noah, and then Noah had a king's son named Limhi, although Limhi was definitely just a vassal king. Uh, he was uh, Conditions had worsened considerably during Limhi's reign, and his focus was to find Zarahemla in the hopes that he and his people, now that this parallel kingdom, this experiment through Zenith, Noah, and Limhi had kind of come to an end, um, he hoped to bring these people back into Zarahemla, even if they had to be slaves or servants. So this is Limhi's mindset as we read his story in Mosiah chapter 8. Uh, and then, of course, uh, that turns into a flashback, and, and we, we learn a great deal more about Limhi as we get into, I think it's Mosiah chapter 20. So Limhi sends an expedition uh, in the hopes that they can find the land of Zarahemla and be relieved from their bondage and, and uh, get out of the land of, of Nephi, which has become a really perilous place for them. So this expedition does not find Zarahemla. So now as this uh, commentary continues from the Book of Mormon Institute manual, though unsuccessful in finding Zarahemla, the search party found a land covered with the bones and remains of a people who had been destroyed. The searchers discovered a record of 24 gold plates, which they took back to King Limhi. When Limhi's people eventually escaped from bondage, these plates were given to King Mosiah to translate. Well, we know that that's because Ammon, the first Ammon, who was sent by King Mosiah, introduced Limhi to King Mosiah and helped him, of course, get back to Zarahemla. Kent Brown has written in Voices from the Dust, Moroni is one of the most tantalizing characters in Scripture. His life bridges two eras, one that spanned the last decades of his civilization, ending with its utter annihilation, and one in which the only civilizing influences were those of his enemies. Although Moroni was raised in one of the most notable families of his era, it made little difference. It was the worst of times. Now, perhaps I should have read that a moment ago when we were talking specifically about this continuity, how it's still Moroni that is with us as we come into the book of Ether. Uh, nevertheless, there's that commentary from Kent Brown. Uh, when we do consider Moroni here, and the way in which these plates were acquired by ultimately by Mosiah and translated by Mosiah, we're still not sure if, and we know, by the way, that Mosiah translated these because that's the tenor of Alma's conversation with his son Helaman in Alma chapter 37. Uh, but we're not sure, really, if Moroni is working off of Mosiah's translation here as he abridges Ether's account, uh, or if Moroni translated them afresh. Uh, Daniel Ludlow speaks of this and says, it is not absolutely clear in the Book of Mormon whether Moroni made his abridgment of the record of Ether from Mosiah's earlier translation, uh, which is recorded, by the way, in Mosiah chapter 28, verses 1 through 20, or whether Moroni took his account directly from the plates of Ether, in which case he would have needed to translate the record as well as abridge it. Now, as we come into verse 3, here's where we start to realize that what Moroni is giving us here from these 24 plates is only a part of the Jaredite record. So verse 3, And as I suppose that the first part of this record, which speaks concerning the creation of the world and also of Adam, and an account from that time even to the great tower, and whatsoever things transpired among the children of men until that time, is had among the Jews. So we're going to learn later that there are details 
that Moroni omits from our current edition of the Book of Ether, uh, namely the brother of Jared's vision. So we'll come back and read about that later. But we're also seeing here that Moroni chose not to include the record, which he refers to as the first part of the record, which spans from the creation of the world and also of Adam all the way up until the Tower of Babel. He chooses not to include this because, as he says, this will be had among the Jews, and he knows well. Uh, Nephi knew this as well because he saw this in his vision, but he knows well that the Gentiles will bring this record of the Jews with them and that it will be added to Moroni's record, which will be hidden up and brought forth to light later. So this will already be covered in the Bible, is what Moroni is saying here, so I'm not going to cover it here. John Welch has written, Also among the ancient Jaredites was a record which had been brought across the great deep from Mesopotamia by Jared and his people. It contained a creation account down to the time of the great tower and also set forth the secret plans of evil men aimed at obtaining kingdoms and glory. None of this early scriptural information, however, is found in our book of Ether, for it was supposed by Moroni that it would be had among the Jews. And of course, Moroni supposed correctly uh, wouldn't it be amazing, I think, to have this additional record from the book of Ether? Uh, surely we'll, we'll have access to that at some point in the future. So if we're keeping track, it's this early portion of the plates that Moroni does not give to us. Uh, and Moroni doesn't give us the uh, secret combinations, the secret oaths uh, in any sort of detail uh, that Alma spoke of when he talked about these plates to Helaman. Uh, thankfully, those are not transmitted either. Uh, an account of their use does come when we read about the daughter of Jared and Achish and so forth. Uh, so, so that will come. And then again, the brother of Jared's vision. Okay, so this is clearly a partial account that we're getting from Moroni, and it's most certainly an abridgment of these 24 plates. It's not the entire thing. Verse 4, Therefore I do not write those things which transpired from the days of Adam until that time, meaning the time of the tower. But they are had upon the plates, and whoso findeth them, the same will have power that he may get the full account. That's quite a thing to say, intimating that at some point in the future, someone else can have access to these actual 24 plates. And whoso does find them, they will have power that they may get this full account. So in other words, the golden plates which lay hidden deep in the mountainside They are what contains an abridgment of these 24 plates, but somewhere exists these actual 24 plates. And again, as Moroni says, whoso findeth them, the same will have power that he may get the full account. That really piques our curiosity, I think. The Book of Mormon Institute manual says, It is significant that the Book of Ether informs us that an account of the creation, Adam, and a history of God's children down to the time of the Tower of Babel existed well before Moses' day. This account may have become, and that's significant, of course, because it's the first five books of Moses uh, in the Bible that teach us of these things. This account may have become lost through apostasy and wickedness, thus necessitating a restoration of this knowledge through revelation to Moses, so we might have the record today. So that's a very interesting comment by the Institute Manual, um, confirming to us once again that the consistency of the charge that prophets in all eras have had to keep records. All we get in this account in the Old Testament is, I don't mean to say that in the wrong way, all we get, but what we get in the Old Testament is Moses's retrospective, as though he is the first record keeper, but he most certainly wasn't, and perhaps 
careful records were kept that either Moses was privy to or these things were revealed to Moses later, but those records were lost through apostasy and wickedness, it seems. So now as Moroni makes clear in verse 5, but behold, I give not the full account, but a part of the account I give from the tower down until they were destroyed. So his timeline is going to begin at the Tower of Babel. It's not going to begin with an account of the creation. As Ogden and Skinner have written, Moroni explained that since the historical report of creation, Eden, and Adam down to Babel, approximately corresponding with Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 10, is available in the biblical record and on the plates of brass. And since this is the case, Moroni omitted all that and commenced his abridgment at the time of the Great Tower. When we have access to the plates of brass, we will get the full account of those early events. We also know that Abraham possessed records of the fathers from the beginning. So Ogden and Skinner are suggesting that this really curious comment uh, in verse 4 about those who findeth them, these plates that um, are, are part of what generated the, the, the golden plates, uh, the, the Book of Mormon, uh, when, when one finds those, then they'll have power to get the account. That instead of that meaning the 24 Jaredite plates, perhaps that means the brass plates. That's what Ogden and Skinner are suggesting here. So now as we move into verse 6, uh, Moroni says, And on this wise do I give the account. So now he's ready to commence with his account. And actually, before he does commence uh, with the story of Jared, uh, whose uh, life corresponds with the timeline of the Tower of Babel, he's first going to provide Ether's genealogy. So we get this inclusion that goes again from verses uh, 7 through 33, actually the end of verse 6 through 33. So here's the end of verse 6. He that wrote this record was Ether, and he was a descendant of Coriantor. So notice here, too, that the, the consistency of record keepers, the commandment to keep a record, and also the way in which the, the, the keeping of the record is tracked and its transmittal from one to another is tracked. Well, here's a genealogy, which is a kind of a companion concept to that. So it begins again with Ether, and he's the descendant of Coriantor. Verse 7, Coriantor was the son of Moron. And Moron was the son of Etham, and Etham was the son of Ahah, and Ahah was the son of Seth, and Seth was the son of Shiblon. So we're going to get this intermingling of familiar biblical names and also very new-sounding names and some names that sound like names we've encountered in the Book of Mormon already, like Shiblon. So Seth was the son of Shiblon. Verse 12, And Shiblon was the son of Kam, and Kam was the son of Coriantum, and Coriantum was the son of Amnigada, and Amnigada was the son of Aaron, And Aaron was a descendant of Heth, who was the son of Hartham. And Hartham was the son of Lib, and Lib was the son of Kish. And Kish was the son of Coram, and Coram was the son of Levi. And Levi was the son of Kim, and Kim was the son of Morianton. And Morianton was a descendant of Riplakish, and Riplakish was the son of Shez. And Shez was the son of Heth, and Heth was the son of Kam. And Kam was the son of Coriantum, and Coriantum was the son of Emer. And Emer was the son of Omer, and Omer was the son of Shul, and Shul was the son of Kib, and Kib was the son of Orihah, who was the son of Jared. So there is the complete genealogy. I'll now read some commentary associated with it. First from the Institute Manual, which says that Ether chapter 1 gives a genealogy of the prophet Ether. This genealogy is a rare occurrence in the Book of Mormon and is explained by the following commentary. This comes actually from Sidney B. Sperry. He says, genealogies are common in the Bible. The Hebrew people took great interest in their family histories, and genealogies seem to have been carefully kept. The number in the scriptures is an index to their importance. 
Notice those in Genesis chapter 5, chapter 11, chapter 46, Numbers chapter 26, 1 Chronicles chapters 1 through 9. Read also the accounts in Ezra chapters 9 through 10, which give an indication of the importance of keeping family histories. The Book of Mormon, however, contains only one example of an extended genealogy, that which is found in Ether chapter 1, verse 6 through 32. It gives the genealogy of Ether, the last prophet of the Jaredite people, whose lineage is traced back 29 generations or more to Jared, who left the Tower of Babel, and and he says or more because it doesn't always say son of, by the way, who left the Tower of Babel with his family at the time of the confounding of the language of the people. Aside from this example, only scattered references of genealogical interest are found. Again, found in the Book of Mormon. Ogden and Skinner write, This genealogy is that of the prophet Ether, a direct descendant of Jared. The brother of Jared and his sons are not mentioned here. Also, we cannot become too dogmatic about the precision of chronologies, since some are sons and some are descendants. And again, that's why Sperry says it's 29 generations or more. John L. Sorensen has written, Lineage, as used here, means a group of people recognizing descent from a common progenitor and using that shared descent as the basis for their societal identity. The record of the Jaredites is similar. Nothing makes that clearer than the genealogy we find in Ether chapter 1, verses 6 through 32. Some of the leaders listed were kings and some others claimants to the throne, but all of them were of the lineage of Jared. Jared's descendants carried the right to rule. Uh, We'll read of that in Ether chapter 6. As with Nephi's descendants, the ruling line who kept the official account during much of the later era. Elite dominant groups organized on this basis occurred in pre-Hispanic America, just as in Europe, uh, the house of such and such, as we can read in the history of Europe, Sorensen says, and throughout much of the world. An expert on native documents, Dr. Robert Carmack, has shown that for Highland Guatemala, each of the major political descent groups of the Quechian peoples who dominated that area when the Spaniards arrived possessed its own written history. Specialist priest scholars kept and interpreted the records. The books or codices themselves served as symbols of the power of the rulers, who publicly displayed them with pomp and reverence, and had portions of them read to their subjects. These documents were consulted to settle questions of history and public policy, and they were used to foretell the future. They recited the formal origin story of the group while also conferring legitimacy and sanctity on the rulers. The book served as well to explain the existing social order, justifying that certain social or ethnic elements were dominant or subservient inside the society and telling why there is cooperation or conflict with surrounding peoples. So now returning to verse 33, this genealogy has brought us to Jared. So it's called the Book of Ether. It's Moroni's abridgment of the Jaredite record, but Ether is the record keeper and Ether is now going to tell us the story. Moroni is going to abridge Ether's story of his descendants. And these descendants begin, at least as Moroni is con- as far as Moroni is concerned, with Jared. So coming back to verse 33, we'll now see the confluence of Jared's timeline and the Tower of Babel timeline. Which Jared came forth with his brother and their families, with some others and their families from the great tower. So this suggests that there was a confounding of the languages and also a scattering of the people um, at this tower. And so these are the two dilemmas, and these are the two dilemmas that the brother of Jared is about to pray about, both the scattering and the confounding of the language, but in reverse order. So as the verse goes on, 
at the time the Lord confounded the language of the people and swore in his wrath that they should be scattered upon all the face of the earth. And according to the word of the Lord, the people were scattered. Ogden and Skinner say very simply, and that of course is what we can observe by reading this in the book of Ether, the historicity of the biblical account of the confounding of language and scattering of the people at the great tower in the land of Babel is hereby confirmed by another scriptural record. So, of course, this makes us think about that incident a little bit and the name Babel and uh, what this tower symbolizes. In Nyman and Tate's Book of Mormon Commentary, the, the volume entitled Fourth Nephi Through Moroni, a contributing author to this is Michael W. Middleton. And he writes a piece called Gatherings in the Last Days. And now here's a small excerpt from that. He says, Under the direction of the Lord, the brother of Jared and his followers were separated from the confounding curse that fell upon the builders of Babel. Now that's a a bit of a spoiler. We're about to read that. From that day to ours, Babel or Babylon, the ancient capital of Babylonia, has been a symbol of all that is corrupt and confused. Specifically, it connotes the false religion of all schemes or denominations, that promise an entrance into heaven which they cannot deliver. So Middleton is getting right to the core of the problem of the Tower of Babel incident. It can seem uh, confusing in the Genesis account. We wonder why the Lord punished the people so severely for building a tall tower, why that was offensive to him, until we start to think about the way that the great and abominable church, as explained in the book of First Nephi, is a counterfeit institution uh, that uh, purports to lead people back to heaven. If that's true, then it would also have counterfeit temples and counterfeit ordinances therein. So it would seem that the Tower of Babel was connected to that idea somehow, and uh, that it was promising entrance to heaven, which it could not deliver. This, of course, was highly offensive to a God that, as uh, Moroni will later tell us, should never be mocked. He'll, he'll say in Ether chapter 12 that fools mock, but they shall mourn. So again, Ether's genealogy is spelled out. It takes us to Jared. Now Jared is uh, living during the time of this tower, and two problems come from this tower. It's the confounding of language and the scattering of the people. So what should Jared and his people do about those two dilemmas? Well, he turns to his brother in this instance, and so now we're introduced to the brother of Jared. He's never named in the record. We know from church history that his name was Mahanrai Moriankamer, and more on that in just a moment. So Jared will direct this brother of his to appeal to the Lord regarding this confounding of the languages. Uh, That is his solution to this problem. So verse 34 says, And the brother of Jared, being a large and mighty man, a man highly favored of the Lord, Jared his brother said unto him, Cry unto the Lord that he will not confound us, that we may not understand our words. Throughout Mormon's abridgment, we have seen interaction between the governmental leader and the prophet. Well, within this family group, which will also consist of friends of this family, this seems to be the same thing that's happening here. Perhaps Jared is the leader of these people, but the brother of Jared is acting as the prophet. That seems to kind of be what's going on here. So the brother of Jared is favored of the Lord, highly favored. He has a relationship with him already. And now as these next several chapters unfold, we'll learn a great deal more about the brother of Jared's relationship with the Lord. So before we move farther into this episode, where the brother of Jared approaches the Lord and asks him not to confound the language of his people, let's read this commentary first by Ogden and Skinner. 
they say there is no suggestion by Moroni as to why the chief character in the narrative is known as the brother of Jared. Daniel H. Ludlow offered three possible reasons why the actual name is not used. The brother of Jared himself, out of modesty, may have intentionally omitted his name, just as the Apostle John did as he prepared his gospel. The final writer of the plates of Ether was a direct descendant of Jared and wanted to emphasize the name of his progenitor. That would be the second possible reason. And the third reason, according to Ludlow, may be that Moroni may have felt that the name was too difficult to adequately translate into the Nephite language. In 1892, George Reynolds wrote that Joseph Smith revealed the name of the brother of Jared. He said, While residing in Kirtland, Elder Reynolds Calhoun had a son born to him. One day when President Joseph Smith was passing his door, he called the prophet in and asked him to bless and name the baby. Joseph did so and gave the boy the name of Mahanrai Moriankamer. When he had finished the blessing, he laid the child on the bed, and turning to Elder Calhoun, he said, The name I have given your son is the name of the brother of Jared. The Lord has just shown or revealed it to me. Elder William F. Cahoon, who was standing near, heard the prophet make this statement to his father, and this was the first time the name of the brother of Jared was known in the church in this dispensation. So again, this name, Mahanrai Moriankamer, was certainly not included in the text. It's not found in the book of Ether, but we have this really interesting story from church history given to us through George Reynolds. Uh, as to the name of the brother of Jared, and very interestingly, the name of this infant son. An incredibly unique name for the son of Elder Reynolds Cahoon, and also uh, such a, a, an amazing connection between him and such a great character in Scripture. Uh, of course, the brother of Jared. Someone, by the way, who had the greatest theophany in all of Scripture, really, Uh, And that's something that I heard Brother Terrell Givens say just recently. There's really nothing quite like the way in which the brother of Jared sees the Lord. And of course, we'll come to that in a few chapters. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has written, The life and legacy of the brother of Jared have become synonymous with bold, consummate, perfect faith. And Thomas R. Valletta has written, when he was a contributing author to Nyman and Tate's Book of Mormon Commentary, in a piece called Jared and His Brother, Uh, The book of Ether employs the phrase the brother of Jared as a type for Jesus Christ. The exclusion of the name draws attention to the fact that Jared was not left alone, but had a very special brother who intervened in his behalf and his family's behalf. So there's a very interesting fourth reason, I think, to add to Ludlow's three reasons for why his name is omitted from the text. Valletta continues, It should not be surprising that the brother of Jared could be a type of Jesus Christ as all of God's prophets typify Jesus Christ. So now the story continues as we come into verse 35. Jared has approached his brother, has asked him to go to the Lord, and request that he not confound their language. Verse 35, And it came to pass that the brother of Jared did cry unto the Lord, and the Lord had compassion upon Jared. Therefore he did not confound the language of Jared, and Jared and his brother were not confounded. So the brother of Jared here is a type of Christ, again, in the sense that he is an intermediary for Jared. And so the Lord has compassion upon whom? Not the brother of Jared, the praying party, but upon Jared. Very interesting how this is working. There's order to it. So the Lord grants Jared's wish, and of course, the brother of Jared's wish. Ogden and Skinner have written that because the language of Jared, his brother, and their families and friends was not confounded, we may infer that they had used and continued to use the Adamic language, which is the pure language of God. 
So if this was the first instance of the sullying of language since Adam, then that would absolutely be true. And so in this case, not only was the Lord preventing their language from being confounded, we can see, but the pure Adamic language was being preserved as it came through Jared and his group and uh, through their migration into the promised land. So now uh, Jared says to his brother in verse 36, Then Jared said unto his brother, Cry again unto the Lord. And it may be that he will turn away his anger from them who are our friends, that he confound not their language. So they brought in their circle to a larger group of people who might be blessed with the same result, and it will be the same group that they will travel with. Verse 37, And it came to pass that the brother of Jared did cry unto the Lord, and the Lord had compassion upon their friends and their families also, that they were not confounded. So that addresses the first dilemma of the Tower of Babel incidents, the confounding of languages. President Joseph Fielding Smith has written, Jared and his brother made the request of the Lord that their language be not changed at the time of the confusion of tongues at the Tower of Babel. Their request was granted, and they carried with them the speech of their fathers, the Adamic language, which was powerful even in its written form, so that the things the brother of Jared wrote were mighty even unto the overpowering of man to read them. That was the kind of language Adam had, and this was the language with which Enoch was able to accomplish his mighty work. So we have read of two appeals to the Lord by the brother of Jared, both having to do with the confounding of language. And now we'll read of the third appeal to the Lord in verse 38, where Jared will direct his brother to ask the Lord about the land and that if they're going to be scattered, perhaps they can go to a land of promise. So verse 38 says, And it came to pass that Jared spake again unto his brother, saying, Go and inquire of the Lord whither he will drive us out of the land. So now we're addressing the second dilemma. And if he will drive us out of the land cry unto him whither we shall go. And who knoweth but the Lord will carry us forth into a land which is choice above all the earth? And if it so be, let us be faithful unto the Lord that we may receive it for our inheritance. Why does Jared have this idea that the Lord would carry them forth into a choice land? Maybe because there was scriptural precedent for that for him. Or maybe it's a notion that came to him through direct revelation. It's similar, I think, for our lives. We find scriptural precedent but it's direct revelation that confirms the course that we should travel. So we emphasize the brother of Jared's faith here, but clearly Jared himself is a man of faith. Uh, And this expression in verse 38 really shows that to us. As Ogden and Skinner have written, that Jared requested his brother to importune the Lord for all of them implies his brother's favored status. But it also may mean that Jared recognized his brother had the birthright, that it was his brother's right and obligation to go before the Lord on behalf of the family. Jared himself appears to be a righteous man, receiving a premonition that the Lord might be intending to take them away and carry them forth into a land which is choice above all the earth. If that is the case, Jared exclaimed, let us be faithful unto the Lord, that we may receive it for our inheritance. Notice that Jared's concern also extended to their friends, as other righteous men have demonstrated. For example, Enos certainly demonstrated that in chapter, well, in verse 9 of Enos chapter 1. We can notice that Jared wonders whether the Lord will drive him and his people out of the land. Drive is the word that's used there. In the same piece out of a Nyman and Tate's uh, Book of Mormon commentary that Thomas Arvaletta uh, contributed to, he also said Jared's phrase, drive us out of the land, 
is like the language used to describe Adam and Eve's being driven from the Garden of Eden. So there's that, that same verbiage, as well as the expression Cain used when he was driven from the face of the Lord. The Hebrew word used in these verses is garash, which means to drive out or cast out, separate, divorce, or expel, sometimes suggesting forcible or violent expulsion. So all of those connections are implied with Jared's use of the word drive. Verse 39, And it came to pass that the brother of Jared did cry unto the Lord according to that which had been spoken by the mouth of Jared. So again, there's order here in what's happening. And it came to pass that the Lord did hear the brother of Jared and had compassion on him and said unto him, Go to and gather together thy flocks, both male and female of every kind, and also of the seed of the earth of every kind, and thy families, and also Jared thy brother and his family, and also thy friends and their families, and the friends of Jared and their families. So this is going to be a large group, and it's quite interesting, I think, that the word friends is used here. It's a, it's a casual term. And uh, the, the scriptures are really a family record. But here the word friends is being used. I think that's really instructive for us. Verse 42, And when thou hast done this, thou shalt go at the head of them down into the valley, which is northward. And there I will meet thee, and I will go before thee into a land which is choice above all the lands of the earth. This is such interesting language that the Lord says that once you go to this place, I will meet thee. We wonder what form that will exist in. But of course, we'll find that the brother of Jared's faith is so great that he literally will meet him. As the Savior has said elsewhere that I'm in your midst, even though you don't see me. He says that in Doctrine and Covenants section 38. But in the case of the brother of Jared, he actually will see him. So this is the solution to the second dilemma posed by the Tower of Babel incident. The first again being the confounding of language, and the second being the scattering of the people. They'll be driven out. And so Jared and his brother hope that the Lord will lead them carefully out uh, so that they might go to a promised land. And the solution during this time is for them to gather. So there's that key word in verse 41 is to gather. This very, very ancient record uh, contains that word and that notion and that concept that still beguiles us to this day uh, to kind of uh, paraphrase what it was that President Nelson said in his last conference that he has been Um, He has had a great interest in this concept of gathering, specifically the gathering of Israel and the gathering of covenant Israel um, throughout his modern-day ministry. The Book of Mormon Institute manual says, Just as members of the House of Israel are called a chosen people, chosen to do the Lord's work, the Book of Mormon refers to the Americas as a chosen land, chosen to be the place for the restoration of the gospel and eventually the New Jerusalem. Both the members of the House of Israel and the Americas have been chosen to assist Heavenly Father in spreading the gospel throughout the world. President Joseph Fielding Smith explained that all of North and South America is a choice land. The Book of Mormon informs us, he says, that the whole of America, both North and South, is a choice land above all other lands, in other words, Zion. The Lord told the Jaredites that he would lead them to a land which is choice above all other lands of the earth. President Ezra Taft Benson also spoke of the Americas being chosen lands. He said in 1844, the prophet Joseph Smith made this solemn proclamation, quote, The whole of America is Zion itself from north to south. That can be found in teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. President Benson continues, The Lord himself decreed, This is a land which is choice above all other lands, which we will read in chapter 2 of Ether. This nation is part of the land of Zion. 
This is a land dedicated by God's servants. When a Book of Mormon prophet referred to the nations of the world, this hemisphere was designated as good. And we can read that language that President Benson is bringing to the fore in teachings of Ezra Taft Benson in uh, Zenos's Olive Tree Allegory in verses 25 and 26 of Jacob chapter 5. Now for the final verse of this chapter, as the Lord is telling the brother of Jared that Jared and his people should gather in a valley northward, and that's exactly how the story will pick up as we begin Ether chapter 2, he ends with this, And there I will bless thee in thy seed, and raise up unto me of thy seed, and of the seed of thy brother, and they who shall go with thee a great nation. And there shall be none greater than the nation which I will raise up unto me of thy seed upon all the face of the earth. And thus I will do unto thee, because this long time ye have cried unto me. And thus ends Ether chapter 1. So I mentioned that phrase in the flyover summary, this, uh, this thing the Lord says to the brother of Jared, that I will do this for you because of the long time that ye have cried unto me, this long time that ye have cried unto me. There's a lot to think about there and the relationship that that statement might have to the injunction that the Savior gives us to pray always. The Book of Mormon Institute manual says, The Lord explained to the brother of Jared that blessings had come to his people as a result of prayers offered over a long time. Enduring obedience coupled with frequent and persistent prayers is powerful. In an 1839 discourse in Commerce, Illinois, the prophet Joseph Smith taught, God is not a respecter of persons. We all have the same privilege. Come to God and weary him until he blesses you. We are entitled to the same blessings. President Spencer W. Kimball similarly taught that we must put great effort into our prayers and that we must pray frequently. He said, do you get answers to your prayers? If not, perhaps you did not pay the price. Do you offer a few trite words and worn out phrases or do you talk intimately to the Lord? Do you pray occasionally when you should be praying regularly, often, constantly? Do you offer pennies to pay the heavy debts when you should give dollars to erase that obligation? When you pray, do you just speak, or do you also listen? Your Savior said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. That's out of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Should we ever fail to get an answer to our prayers, President Kimball continues, we must look into our lives for a reason. So in other words, we must uh, cry unto God for a long time, as the brother of Jared did. Well, as we move into later chapters of the book of Ether, this theme of the brother of Jared crying unto the Lord will continue, and we'll learn more and more about his relationship to him and about his great faith, which again resulted in what uh, Brother Givens recently called the greatest theophany of really any prophet to be found in ancient scripture. So a great deal more is to come in the book of Ether as we read about this Mahanrai Moriankamer, his interactions with the Lord and the migration of his and Jared's people to a promised land. So we have all that to look forward to. For now, this brings us to the end of Ether chapter 1. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. This podcast has recently reached 100,000 listens and has been heard in many parts of the world. I love hearing from you. If you have the time to reach out to me, as many of you have, to share episodes on social media, and to write a review on iTunes, 
you will greatly help my efforts to get this podcast to even more listeners and help them in their experience with the Come Follow Me curriculum. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. The Book of Mormon Institute Manual, Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon, and the revised edition of Thomas Arvaleta's Book of Mormon Study Guide have provided me with rich and insightful commentary. Introductions, chapter analyses, and sectional divisions are my own. Parallel passages of scripture, as well as general conference addresses that come to mind, also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them, and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text. A text that is endlessly rich with detail, and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story and mortality. I have found, and hope that you have too, that carefully studying the Word, particularly in the Book of Mormon, has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author, Jesus the Christ. I offer my witness that His attention is fixed upon us. He delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know Him better. So, have a wonderful day. Keep in touch, and thank you for listening.